Please grab your Bibles and go there. This is where we were in the Bible reading plan this past week. I'm going to jump right in and just read the first nine verses. Is primarily where we will be at today. Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1. God says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a fainting burning, faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, as I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we are gathered here with your spirit, with your word, with your people. God, would you just do what only you can do? Would you change us again, Lord, as we gather around you in your presence here today? It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So this, uh, this chapter is one of four passages in the book of Isaiah that throughout church history has been referred to as the servant songs. The servant songs. The other passages are uh, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then also Isaiah 53, which we'll be looking at next week. But the, the, this passage is known as one of the servant songs. The reason that these passages are referred to as the servant songs are because as you read Isaiah and you come to kind of the last third of the book, um, it's, it's like this, he begins to speak of this kind of figure that appears. And again, Isaiah is, is prophesying about this one that is, that is to come. And I, Isaiah simply refers to him again and again as the servant or as God's servant. And what's interesting about this figure is that this figure seems to be separate from and superior to the nation of Israel, who has also been referred to as God's servant throughout the book. In fact, later on in this very chapter, he refers to Israel as his servant. In chapter 41, he referred to Israel as his servant. But this servant, this servant is, is, is different. Um, this servant only exists to do God's will. That's what he wants, above all else, is to do God's will. His obedience is perfect. His heart is pure. His motives are truly humble, and Isaiah has been speaking of him throughout the book. It is, it, this servant is Emmanuel. It is the child that is to be born that we talked about a couple weeks ago. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, the prince of peace, it is Jesus. But now Isaiah begins to speak of him as this servant, and, and again, as I was studying this and looking at these these servant song passages, 
in this book, and just I was, it hit me again that you know this is like 700 years before Jesus is going to come on the scene. And again, Jesus is prophesied throughout the Bible, all the way back at the beginning. As soon as Adam and Eve sin, um, God says that He's going to send this one to crush the serpent's head, and it's a reference to Christ. So all throughout the Bible, from the very beginning of history as we know it, it's all been about Jesus. But, but again, here, 700 years before Jesus comes, it's like, it's like God and heaven are just longing for somebody to come and to do the will of God. Somebody that's just going to come and, and to obey him. Not just because God just, not, not because he just wants to be in control, although he's God and so whatever he says, we should do it. And he has the right to tell us what to do. But the reason that, that God in, in heaven is, is longing for this one to come is, is that this is how God intends for us to live as servants, doing his will. Like when he gave the law to the people of Israel, that, this nation that was supposed to be his servants. Like he says, have no other gods before me. Don't make any carved images. Don't take my name in vain. Honor the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't murder. Don't steal. Like those those are good things, amen? Life will be better for you if you don't have any idols before God. Life will be better for you if you don't steal, don't covet, don't kill, don't murder, right? Like God, he's not just doing this for the sake of control. He's trying to tell us how he's intended for us to live, but nobody does it. Everybody's just about themselves. We're, we're all the anti-servants. Servants are doing the will of their master and they serve those that the master tells them to serve. But we all, we're all takers. Because of our sin, we're, we're selfish. And so Isaiah begins to, to speak here. This servant. This servant who's Jesus. The ones to come that is going to perfectly do the will of the Father. There's kind of three parts if you uh, were going to outline these nine verses here. Kind of a simple outline would be this. You have God's delight in his servant, God's description of his servant, and then God's promise to his servant. God's delight in his servant, God's description of his servant, and God's promise to his servant. And so I just want to show you where that's at in the text, but then I, I want to answer this question in regards to each one of those points of that outline. Is just simply this, why is that good news? Why is it good news that God delights in his servant, in his son? Why is it good news for us that this is the description that we have of the servant? And why is it good news that God makes a promise to his servant in this verse, as I'll try to show you where that's at and explain it. So let's just work through that. I'm going to try to answer that question, and hopefully it will move our hearts this morning to sing a new song to him. First of all, God's delight in his servant. Look at verse 1. God says, behold, and we've seen this throughout the book of Isaiah, right? Behold, behold, look. God says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and I get this, in whom my soul delights. God delights in this servant. Now, again, we know that it's Jesus. Okay? 
And again, I'll show you a passage in the New Testament here where these first four verses are quoted specifically, making it explicit that this is Jesus, okay? I'm not making this up. But again, in Isaiah's day, this servant comes on the scene, and now God, Almighty God, who Isaiah has just been hammering away that, I mean, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, right? They're accounted as dust on the scales. They are less than, than nothing. But here comes the servant, and God delights in him. God delights in him. Sometimes we, we, we kind of grope for words, we grope for language um, when we're trying to communicate really big eternal realities about our Trinitarian God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, and the danger in that is that sometimes we, we tend to oversimplify things, yet at the same time we're trying to wrap our minds around these big things. But if you'll work with me here, and if I can just give kind of a simple illustration to show why this matters and why this is good news, that God delights in his servant, who is his son. Um, We've just been through a week, and maybe you guys have still got some more of this coming yet today, or maybe later this week, where we've been handing out a lot of presents, right? Yeah? But did anybody have to buy that present for that person who already has everything? You know that person? That person that it's just really hard to buy for. You're like, what? What, what would they like? What would really make them happy? What, you know, uh, what could I get them that they would truly, that they would truly enjoy? And again, it's just kind of a pithy illustration, but obviously on a much grander scale. What can you bring to God? What truly satisfies his heart? What truly makes him happy? Here's the answer. His son. His servant. Jesus. God delights in the son. And again, we don't, throughout church history, the Puritans especially, they they meditated and wrote about this a lot. About the delight within the Trinitarian Godhead between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We tend to not think about that a lot because our culture is all about us and me. And you're like, well, I, I thought that God just delighted in me. Well, he, he does. <laughs> he does. But how can an almighty, holy God just naturally delight in those who are sinful and have not done his will? In fact, we've done the exact opposite. We've suppressed the truth with all that we are so that we do not need to obey him because we don't want a Lord. We don't want a master over us. But here you see God delighting in, being satisfied in his son. And the reason that's good news for us is because if this God who, you know, again, if, I, if you allow me to compare him to that person who already has everything and like what, what can you bring to him, The reason it's good news for us is because it shows us that if God is delighting in the Son, the one who has everything, and he's delighting in the Son, and it satisfies him, then it will also satisfy us. Don't look to other things, folks. Um, Our hearts are continually looking for satisfaction. Our hearts are continually looking for something 
to delight in. My boys made out like thieves this, this year for Christmas. And by, between not just me and Hannah, but you know, the grandparents and on both sides, you know, all that, man. Here's the truth, okay? Yesterday, yesterday was, uh, well, let me back up. Let me back up. They've been on Christmas break, right? And so, which is good. Like, I look forward to them being home. But you know what happens. I mean, like, Monday, it's like day one. I'm so bored. There's nothing to do. But yesterday, was, we didn't have much of that. Why? Because they were newly occupied, preoccupied with all the stuff that they got, right? But here's what I know. That as good as that stuff was, and as thankful as they are for it, and listen, God gives us everything to be richly enjoyed, like I'm not knocking presents or anything like that. But I know that by about Wednesday, that will wear off. I'm bored, there's nothing to do. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. And we giggle, but can we just be honest? It's not just our kids, right? It's not just our kids. Our hearts are the same way. We long for something to satisfy us. Look to Jesus. Jesus is the delight of the Father. He alone can satisfy your heart. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, says this. He says, when we say that God loves his Son... We are not talking about a love that is self-denying, sacrificial, or merciful. We are talking about a love of delight and pleasure. God is not stooping to pity the undeserving when he loves his son. This is how God loves us. It is not how he loves his son. He is well pleased with his son. His soul delights in the son. When he looks at his son, he enjoys and admires and cherishes and prizes and relishes what he sees. The first great pleasure of God is his pleasure in his son. Amen? Let Jesus satisfy your heart. Amazing verse. Secondly, not only God's delight in the servant but God's description of the servant. Um, There are many things. Let me give you six or seven here. His description of this person. Number one, it's the obvious one I've already said. He's called the servant. He's called the servant, my servant. He's my servant, God says, verse one. Secondly, also in verse one, it says that God will put his spirit upon him. Now this is theologically significant because in the Old Testament, the time this is being written, um, not everybody not all of God's people had the Spirit of God actually dwelling in them because the Holy Spirit could not dwell with that which is unholy, us, in all of its fullness um, because we would die, basically. Because the perfect sacrifice had not yet been paid. But this is the great significance between the Old and New Testament, the Old and New Covenants. It's not that in the Old Covenant people were being saved by works and in the New Covenant people were being saved by faith through grace. It's always been by faith in the Messiah, the one that you were in the Old Testament looking forward to Okay, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, or the one now on this side of the cross that we look back to and what he did there through his death, burial, and resurrection. But the significance of the new covenant is that now that the perfect sacrifice 
The blood of Christ has been paid. Now the Holy Spirit can come live inside of us. Which is why after Jesus ascends back up into heaven, you see this theologically significant event that happened where now the, the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost like a rushing mighty wind, whoosh, and it filled all those who believed in him. Okay? But here you see that this servant, it's gonna have, he's going to have the Spirit in all of its fullness upon him. Third description of the servant is that he's going to bring forth justice. You see this three times in just a couple verses. End of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. End of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Middle of verse 4, it says, until he has established justice in the earth. He's going to bring forth justice. The, the, the idea of justice in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, it is a massive, massive concept. We don't have the, uh, the time to go into all of the different nuance and the different ways that it's used. But if I had to sum it up, again, probably oversimplifying it a little bit, I would just say this, is that when the Bible speaks of God's justice, it's speaking of the way that God intended things to be. The way that he intended them to be from the beginning. When he created everything in the garden, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates man and he says, it's very good. But because of sin and man's rebellion against God, everything became not very good. But God, because of his faithfulness, is on a mission to make all things whole and restore all things even better than they ever were for all time. And this servant is on a mission to bring forth this justice the way God intended things to be. Um, Fourthly, the fourth description, um, he, he doesn't make it about him. He doesn't make it about his gain in a selfish, worldly sense. You'll see in verse two, he says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Now, I don't know if we can throw this up on the screen or you can turn there, but in Matthew 12, Jesus is healing a bunch of people and these first four verses of Isaiah 42 are quoted, specifically referring to him. Let me just read them to you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. Okay, people are zealous to kind of come and make him their leader, make him their king, because, man, he's, you know, feeding thousands of the few loaves and fishes, and he's doing miracles and all sorts of stuff. And many followed him, and he healed them. But listen, and he ordered them not to make him known. Not to make him known. Then verse 17 this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. I believe that one of the things Matthew's trying to get across here is that Jesus, in, even though he was gaining this massive popularity, because of the miracles that he was doing at this time, and again, the popularity of people is fleeting and fickle. They're eventually going to crucify him. But at this time, Jesus would have had this opportunity to, to somehow, in a, in a natural way, and here's the thing, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been wrong because he's Jesus. He's God, right? Like, if anybody can do this, has the right to do it, he does. But he, he doesn't. He's humble. And he orders him not not to tell anybody, just he's doing the miracles because God's told him to and because he cares about the people, that they'd get help. So he doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street for any sort of selfish gain in the way that you or I would. The fifth description is 
His sensitivity and gentleness towards the weak is shocking. Shocking. This image right here, I don't know if you just brush past this, but this is an unbelievable image in verse 3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So here, if you've ever, you know, sometimes down around like a pond or a lake, I don't know what the technical term is for this, but tall grass, right? You know what I mean? Like a reed, like kind of grows down around the pond or maybe just in the pond. You've got those tall reeds, that tall grass. Picture one of those that's just broken, snapped, and it's just hanging on. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm trying to really demonstrate this, but <laughs> it's just a reed that's just broken, and it's just hanging on. Here's what this says. If I, like, if I see, like, you, you give no regard for a broken reed. Like, what's it matter? In fact, if I'm walking by it, just because I don't know why I do it, but I might just yank it off, right? Just, it's not what Jesus does. Broken reed, it said he's going to come. He's going to put it back in place. He's going to bind it together so that it will grow. The second image is, is, is very similar. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. You blow out a candle and it's still smoking, but it's not even putting off any light. It's just smoldering. You know what I do? Put that puppy out. Don't want my smoke alarm to go off. Not Jesus. He'll come and he'll blow on it that it'll burn brightly again. This sensitivity towards our weakness, because here's the deal, folks, you're like, who are these broken reeds? Who are these smoldering wicks? It's us. It's us. Do you know this morning that whatever need you brought in here, Jesus cares so much about it And I know that when we just go throughout this life and this world and the busyness and, and people don't always recognize it, we think that nobody cares. Brothers and sisters, Jesus cares. He cares. And if you feel like that broken reed this morning, you're just kind of hanging on to that smoldering wick and you're trying to get lit again, but you just can't, you're just smoking, you're not even putting off any light, He cares. And I pray that even right now, by His Spirit and through the preaching of the Word, that He would draw near to you and that He would let you know just how much He loves you. And that He would bind you up and breathe life into you again. But again, this sensitivity, it's, it's shocking compared to how we live. Sixth, discouragement <laughs> will not stop Him from his mission. He, he will not let discouragement stop him. And again, I, I, we'll look at verse 4. It says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Now, let, let's, let's wrestle with this and interpret this a little bit. Because next week, we're going to look at the last of these servant songs in Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, it says that he is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Why? But we, I mean, you come to bear the sins of the world, you're going to be acquainted with grief. Right? But when it says here that 
he will not grow faint or be discouraged. It, it, it doesn't mean that he doesn't understand hardship. It doesn't mean that he didn't experience pain in this life. He did. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin, the Bible says. But what it means here when it says that he will not grow faint or be discouraged is that he ultimately will not allow discouragement to keep him from the mission that the Father has given him to help these weak, broken reeds, to help these smoldering wicks, these sheep that are like without a shepherd, not knowing where to go. And, and I don't know, I, uh, listen, I don't think you have to be a pastor or a missionary or in full-time ministry to understand what I'm about to say, but I'll tell you what, I, I so identify with this. I, this, this idea of discouragement in trying to do what God has called you to do, I, I can't, I've told you this before, and it's no, like, I don't say it flippantly. In fact, the longer I go, I, at times, if I'm just being really transparent, at times I can even get more disgusted with myself because, because I, you know, I'm like, I've been following Jesus for 20 years. Why, why, Eric, do you still get discouraged? But I do. And probably the only person that knows other than me would be Hannah, how many times I have quit ministry. Because I've been discouraged. But Jesus never gave up. He never gave up. He never gave up. He doesn't give up on us this morning. Did you know that? You might come in here this morning and last night, you might, you might have sinned. I know it was Christmas, but that doesn't stop anything. And here's the thing, though. It might not have been a new sin. What's really discouraging is when it's the same old sin. The same one. You just you keep tripping on the same stone. You know, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, he who slips on the same stone twice deserves to break his neck. That's why we don't quote Chinese proverbs. We stick to the Word of God. But listen. Folks, I've slipped on the same stone thousands of times. But Jesus doesn't give up on me. It's incredible. I think each one of us could say this, if we're honest, but I know just for myself, I have given him a thousand, bazillion, million reasons to be discouraged, to grow faint, and to give up. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He just keeps, he just keeps loving me, and, I, and I, find that, I find that amazing. Amen? I find it amazing. Um, <clears throat> why is this good news? Well, I kind of answered it already if you don't think this is good news, but why is it good news, this description of the servant? that we have here, well, it's, it's exactly what we need. Again, we are these broken reeds. We are these smoldering wicks. I mean, let's pretend that the opposite was true. What if God delighted in a servant who was um, efficient and, always, and, and not willing to waste any time or energy or resources? And God delighted in a servant who, who, who uh, didn't look with care upon broken reeds and smoldering wicks, but instead just cut them off and just got on with it. Let's, let, let's look to those reeds that are intact in and those wicks that are burning brightly. That's who we want in the kingdom. That would be really bad news, right? 
But this description is wonderful. Secondly, it's also good news, and, and uh, we really need to get this. We could spend a lot of time on this. I, I probably won't here this morning, but we will in, in the coming months. Um, but the other reason this is good news is it reveals the heart of God in a very unique way. Again, this is describing the servant, who is Jesus, God's son, but God delights in this description of the servant. And so it not only reveals the heart and the life of the servant, the mission of the servant, it reveals the heart of God in that he delights in this, correct? And I say this because of something significant that I think happens in our hearts theologically that I think needs to be reconciled, is that a major milestone in every Christian's maturity is understanding that the Father, Son, and Spirit are unified in their heart and their desire towards sinners like ourselves. Like, I think sometimes we read the Old Testament, and God's lighting people up, you know, and we kind of like, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's wiping out old people groups that are rebellious to him, you know, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, there's that, and then in the New Testament, you're like, okay, did God just kind of, is he just a little more chill now? Is that what's going on? And, you know, and so, so you've, we, some of us have in our mind, we have this, this picture of the Father who's mean, and he's got this rod of wrath in his hand, but maybe the Son comes, and the Son wrestles it away from him, and no, God, I'll, I'll, I'll go for him, okay. And God's like, okay, fine, go do it. No, that's, not, that's not what's happening. And even the disciples wrestled with this, this imagery of the Father, Son, and Spirit, those separate, that they're, that they're not fully one. I mean, it was after three years of walking with Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Philip said to him, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And do you know Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you? And still you don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they care about you because their heart is one of grace and mercy. And Jesus made it possible through the sacrifice that he came to give. Lastly here, God's promise to the servant. Again, deeply theologically significant. We don't have time to pack all of the kind of the imagery here in the language, but look at verse 5, 6, and 7. Verse 5, you have this description of God. So he says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens, who stretched them out, who spread out the earth that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those uh, who walk in it. Now, oftentimes throughout the Bible, everywhere, wherever you have um, a, a strong description of God, it's usually followed either before or after um, by some sort of promise from God. And the reason for that is, is because a promise is only as good as the one giving the promise, Right? And so here you have this promise from God who is the one who stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth, and who gives breath to everything. In other words, this is who I am. Now here's my promise. Here's what I'm going to do, verse 6. And again, he's speaking this to the servant, the son. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Here's the promise. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. The Father speaking this to the Son. At Jesus' baptism, 
the whole Trinity's there. Jesus is getting baptized. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The heavens are ripped open and a voice comes from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's hard to understand. It's deep theological waters. Um, be the first to admit that there's things here that are mysterious and hard to grasp. But Jesus, although he never for one millisecond ceased to be God, he somehow lived his life on this earth also as fully God but also fully man. Trusting in the love of the Father. That the love of the Father and the, 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 the love that the Father had spoken over him at the beginning of his ministry at his, at his baptism. Um, and he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. In the Old Testament, when the covenant was given to Israel, this other, another group that's referred to as God's servant, the covenant was given on stone tablets. That didn't really work that well. Again, it wasn't that God's plan was bad. The law is holy, righteous, and good. Again, all those commandments I listed earlier were written by the finger of God on a stone tablet, but that wasn't enough. We needed a different kind of covenant. We needed a covenant with eternal blood to be spilled. And so Jesus came, and somehow he is the embodiment of the covenant. Verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Well, why is this good news that the Father gives this promise to the Son? Well, first of all, it, it shows us how we're to live, that Jesus lived his life in the promise of the Father, that he would take him by the hand and that he would keep him. In fact, on, in John 13, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, listen carefully to this, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that in a few hours he's going to be arrested and he's going to die a brutal death. But in John 13, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, listen, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he washes the disciples' feet. He, he does the ultimate act of service, this servant of God. But it was the promises that he knew all things had been given to him from the Father. He'd come from the Father, and he was going back to the Father that allowed him to serve. But the second reason this is good news is that more significantly for us, I, and it, this is just amazing, is that because of what Jesus did in being this covenant um, that God gave us, this promise to the servant here, that I will take you by the hand and I will keep you, that promise to the servant is also a promise to us. It's also a promise to us. In fact, I personally think that this is what Jesus had in mind when he said this in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
And here's, here's the reality, folks. And you've heard me use this illustration before, I, I think. Um, and I'm sorry that I recycle illustrations, but I just can't get a better one than this. I can't get a better one than this. Is, um, you know, yesterday, one of the things we got Finn for Christmas was a, was a VR headset. Have you guys ever used those? Totally freaky, by the way. I was totally dizzy after using it. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That has nothing to do with what I want to say. But anyway, several years ago, just how technology has progressed, I guess. Anyway, several years ago, he was very little. And we had gotten the boys a PlayStation for Christmas. And, uh, and Finn was really not that good at video games back then. Um, he, had, uh, he had broken one of our TVs when we got him a Wii because there was this game where you sword fight, you just go like this and shake the little thing and you swing your sword and he went like this and just subconsciously moved up closer to the screen and whacked our big screen and broke it. Anyway, I didn't need to tell that story either, but sorry, buddy, I'm roasting you this morning. It's all just coming back to me now. But anyway, this other time, um, we got him a PlayStation and, and we got him uh, an NBA game with it. And it was several years old. It was when LeBron James was on the Miami Heat, uh, whatever year that was. Anyway, so Finn's playing by himself, and I'm down in the basement doing something. He's down there playing, and I, and I just glance over, and I see that he's playing against the Miami Heat, who were like the best team on that game at that time. And he is against the computer, and, he's, and he has the 76ers, who were the worst team at, at that time, okay? The process had not happened yet. And um, Sorry, some of you will get that joke later. Uh, but uh, anyway, he has the worst team. And, he's, and I'm watching him, so he's got the worst team. He's playing against the best team. And he's just, he'll get the ball, and he just throws it from like full court or half court. He's just shooting it. And so he's not making anything. And then the other team comes down, the Miami Heat, and they get it, and they score. And so he, he's down. It's like 60 to 2. And I go, buddy, what are you doing? And he goes, it's all part of my plan. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, really? What, uh, how's this work? He goes, well, I just let him get way ahead. And then at halftime, I switched teams. <laughs> That's how he'd win. And again, I think I've told that story before. And buddy, thank you for letting me use you for all my sermon illustrations this morning. But here's the deal. I, it, it sounds silly, but guys, I'm telling you, this is... This is the heart of the new covenant and of salvation and of our justification. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get his perfect score. He takes our zero upon him on the cross and bears the punishment that we deserve. And the same promise that the Father gives to the servant here in Isaiah 42 is the same promise that Jesus gives to us in John chapter 10. That nobody's going to snatch him out of, out of our hand. Worship team, you can come up. Let me close here with one quote and a couple questions. This is kind of a lengthy quote from John Owen. Again, a, a, one of the Puritans that I mentioned earlier. Just, just try to listen here. Again, the Puritans thought long and hard about these eternal realities between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But John Owen in his book, Communion with God, 
says God's first and chief love is his son. Not only as his eternal son who was the delight of his soul before the foundation of the world, but also as the son is our mediator and the means by which the father's love is conveyed to us. In scripture, we are said to have access to God and to believe in God only through Christ. The Father loves us and chose us before the foundation of the world, and that love of the Father led him to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In pouring out his love, there is not one drop that falls on us except through Christ. The holy anointing oil was all poured on the head of Aaron and from there went down to the skirts of his clothing. Love is first poured out on Christ, and from him it flows down to us. The Father's purpose in doing that is that Christ should be in all things preeminent. Christ is the well of salvation into which the water of God's love is poured. We then draw by faith from Christ the well of our salvation, the water of God's love. If I had to sum that up, I'd say it's all about Jesus, folks. It's all about Jesus. Just bow your heads with me this morning as we close this last service here, 2021. Let me just ask you, in this season of your life, what is your soul most delighting in? What is your soul seeking to be satisfied in? If it's anything other than Jesus, it will not last. He alone is full of eternal delight and satisfaction. Secondly, if you, if you feel like a broken reed or a smoldering, a smoldering wick right now in this season, like you're just about to go out, I just want to say to you again, God sees you. He sees you right where you sit. He saw you before you were in that seat. He knows you're getting up and you're, you're rising up and you're sitting down, you're going out and you're coming in. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the words that are on your tongue before they're even there, when they're still in your mind or in your heart. He knows. And he cares. He cares deeply. And I didn't read this part, but the next verse, verse 10 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. And I just want to say to you this morning that if you are here this morning and you would describe yourself as a broken reed or a smoldering wick, I just want to say that I'm going to pray for you in just a second, believing that God's going to give you a new song. New song. That's going to be a new season. And that song, make no mistake, is ultimately going to be about Jesus and what he's done and who he is. But in all things, whether good, bad, ugly, painful, difficult, he's working for your salvation. He is working for your salvation. Continue to trust him. Just continue to sing. Father, I just thank you for your great love for us. You are so patient, you are so sensitive, you are so gentle, and we do not deserve it, yet it is exactly what we need. And I just want to pray 
for those this morning, Lord, that are like those broken reeds, and they are literally just hanging on. Father, I pray that you would come to them in a special way, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would let them know how much you love them, and I pray that they would give all the honor, all the glory, all the praise to you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us to the end of another year. I know we're not quite there yet, but Lord, we give the next year to you, and the next, and the next, and the next. Thank you for serving us, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.